There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Welcome to the Brandel Chambly Podcast with Jaime Diaz. It's a pleasure to be here with Brandel again. Um, a lot's going on in the world of golf. Let's get right to it. One thing I think is on everybody's top of mind is, uh, is Tiger Woods going for number 83 at, at Riviera this week. He's got a, a mixed sort of uh, interesting and, and uh, perplexing history at Riviera. Brandel, I, I can't help but remember I was actually there uh, when you were in a six-way playoff in, 19, in 2001 uh, that Robert Allenby hit this incredible three-wood on the 18, 18th, uh, first playoff hole, the 18th hole, with a three-wood to, through the rain. Um, I wonder if you could reflect on that just for a moment, your, uh, your memories and, uh, uh, you know, get into the playoff yeah. and, and, and uh, what it is about Riviera that uh, strikes you the most as a challenge. Well, it's, uh, it's a place that I, I played well at because I was a, I was a picker um, and the Kikuya fairways there, the ball sets up. So if you're, if you're a digger there, you get some surprises. But if you're a picker, um, you can hit some high-quality iron shots there, some high iron shots. Um, so I always hit my irons better there. And also I had a love affair with the place. You know, when I was in college, I went out there on a, a sort of a – um, a pilgrimage. Uh, 1983 NCAA's were in um, California, just a little north of LA, I think up uh, around San Jose area. <clears throat> so I went out there and got to know the course and played it and had a deep respect for it. But uh, but yeah, it, it sort of always, for the same reasons it always brought the best out in me, I could argue that uh, um, to some extent it's, it's why Tiger Woods hasn't played well there. There's three reasons why. Uh, when I say he hasn't played well, from 98 to 2000, 1998 to 2005, his worst finish was 18th. So um, I say played well, comparatively speaking, to his record. He's never won there, and, and it begs the question why. And I would argue for three different reasons, OB, Kikuya, and eucalyptus trees. So um, we'll go on the Kikuya first. The Kikuya, because the fairways are such that the ball sets up, it, it to some extent minimizes his strength. His strength, obviously, was his iron play. But at Riviera, everybody is a better iron player because the ball is essentially sitting on a tee. So you don't have to go down and dig it and pick it off of these sort of very thin lies. So it, it minimized his strength, which was his iron play. Uh, at, with regard to uh, the rest of the golf course, it, I would say it sort of highlighted – uh, or maximized his weakness. And he really only had one weakness, and that was off of the tee. So if you start to look at the key par fours on this golf course, and I'll name a few of them, right? So 2, 12, um, 13, 15, and you start to look at these holes. Um, there's out-of-bounds left on two. You cannot play from the right trees because they're eucalyptus. You, cannot, you, you almost cannot get out of there unscathed. Um, the same thing is true at 12. Left at 12 is out of bounds. The right are these enormously tall eucalyptus trees. You get to 13, and you cannot play from left. Matter of fact, up at the green, there's out of bounds left, and you cannot play from the right. Um, so sort of the same thing's true at 18. If you miss it left at 18, you, you really can't play from the side of that hill, nor can you recover from the eucalyptus trees. So as you go around that golf course and you think about as you keep as you think about that golf course, you keep in mind just further south there at Torrey Pines, the key holes there, the key par fours. He could get it past the bunkers, he could play from left or right. He could mostly where there was trouble left, like at four at Torrey Pines South, he could drive it over the bunker on the right. So he could get around that golf course with less than ideal uh, driving game, less than ideal accuracy. And a lot of the, the holes uh, would allow him to sort of hit this fade out there. So the golf course doesn't set up well for him, uh, Riviera. In spite of being this tremendous golf course, it sort of maximized his weakness and minimized his strength. So it's the out-of-bounds at 2, the out-of-bounds at 12, 
And when he gets in those eucalyptus trees, he can't really get over them. And to get around them, you've got to try to run the ball up, and Kikuya doesn't allow you to do it. You put all that together. That's fascinating. You put yeah. all that together, and it's, I, I would make the argument, Al making the argument, it's why the golf course has, has not been kind to him, comparatively speaking. That's a great analysis, I believe, and it's one that is flown under the radar because he's, if anything, put the yeah, focus on on bumpy greens as being the thing he didn't like. I know when he stopped playing there, that's what he had <laughs> well, kind of behind the scenes complained about. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I see, he he seemed to put pretty good on bumpy greens at Pebble Beach and and San Diego. I don't yes. think it's the bumpy yes. greens. I think it's just that uh, again, the weakest part of his game has been his driving. And then in the strongest part of his game is iron play. But everybody hits the ball. I mean, not everybody. but The middle-of-the-road iron players hit their iron shots better at because, because the ball's sitting on yeah. a tee. So, you know, yeah, it, it takes a— only a, a guy who has played there as you did. That's a very subtle, nuanced difference. That, that's but it's really a big pertinent. difference. But it's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, having said that, do you think because his game has somewhat— um, evolved into one where he's a more accurate driver, at least yeah. anecdotally. I'm not sure of the step yeah. and maybe not quite as long. Is he going to be possibly more effective going yeah. forward at Riviera? Absolutely. And, and to that to that point, Jaime, I think you know it would be a good idea for Tiger Woods to explore new golf courses because he's, at least for the early part of this year, he, he looks like a completely different golfer. Um, he dri- He's driving the ball, you know, much straighter. Now, I mean, I'm not you know, it, it began to take shape sort of very late last year, and <clears throat> obviously, beginning part of this season, he he looks to be driving the ball as well as he ever has. Uh, looks like he's swinging the club just pretty much as well as he ever has without the power. So, I think, yeah, um, you know, maybe the golf course suits him a little better now. Um, he's not going to be tempted on two at Riviera to you know, at the last minute bail out, miss it to the right. Same thing at twelve. Um, you know, there's there's a few holes out there that have have given him problems, um, and it, you know, there's out of bounds left at number one. You know, in 2003, when he was arguably in that greatest stretch, um, you know, he made a double on the on the very first hole. Um, it, you know, OB comes into play. OB comes into yeah. play left at one and two and twelve. And um, anyway, it's uh, it's not a, it's not a great track for him. Um, but maybe as he gets older. Over the next two, three, four years playing there, maybe uh, who knows? Maybe he'll uh, he'll snag a win, something he wasn't able to do. But you know, it is it is a historic place because it's the place where he hit his first golf shot on the PGA Tour in 1992. I was there that week. I played, and he birdied the first hole. So the very first hole he ever played on the PGA Tour as a I think he was 16 years old. Uh, first shot he stroke struck, first birdie he ever made on the PGA Tour it was right there at Riviera. So, for a lot of different reasons, it's a uh, it's a compelling week uh, this week. Thanks, Brandel. Now let's let's switch gears slightly to uh, well, dramatically to um, the Premier Golf League. Um, I really haven't heard you expound on this yet, and uh, I certainly have my thoughts. Uh, you know, I just very quickly, um, I don't feel the urgency for something like this. Uh, because I think the PGA Tour has been very successful. And the whole idea of stars, you know, being limited to like 48 guys um, is one where I feel kind of goes against the collective um, star power of a great PGA Tour field. Uh, So, you know, I, I, I feel like there's just an awful lot of sort of free money, you know, 54 holes, no cut, uh, you know, $10 million purses. Not saying there's anything wrong with free enterprise, but it, to me it goes against the ethos of the PGA Tour, which is, you know, it's got to be difficult. It's got to be against the best. It's got to be against a lot of the best, not a select group, and in terms of being valued in history. And so I'm, I, especially for great players, I would be surprised to see a Tiger Woods, obviously, um, sort of give up what I think has been the continuum of his legacy, which is, you know, always taking on golf at the highest level in the most difficult conditions and thriving and showing he is the best for something like this. Anyway, that's just a thumbnail, quick reaction. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I never underestimate the um, <clears throat> imagination and initiative of entrepreneurs. Um, if there's a way to make money, they're going to figure it out and they're going to do it. But it seems to me that this thing 
doesn't happen without Tiger Woods. You know, the same way a hot air balloon doesn't get in the air without heat, Tiger Woods is the heat. And this thing doesn't get in the air without Tiger Woods. And Tiger Woods, uh, I just cannot imagine him being interested in a team format, finishing somewhere in the Middle East at 10 or 11 or 12 o'clock in the morning here in the United States, which in and of itself, from a rating standpoint, doesn't seem viable. But Tiger Woods has always been a pretty darn good tour soldier. He's cared a lot about his historical imprint, thumbprint in, in the world of golf. Uh, 82, 83, 84, 85 wins matters to Tiger Woods. Uh, 15, 16, 17 uh, majors matters to Tiger Woods, uh, maximizing uh, his potential from a historical standpoint. And also not to overlook the fact that he's gone into that period of his life where he it seems to be, when I listen to him talk and hear his friends talk about him, that it, it matters to him um, what kind of father he is as much or more than what kind of golfer he is right now. So can't imagine this working without Tiger Woods, and I cannot imagine Tiger Woods giving it his endorsement. Other players, sure, they'll probably line up because uh, tens of 20s, 30s, 40 $50 million could be in play. And, you know, particularly Phil Mickelson, you know, the, the door is pretty much closed on his career uh, although I think he'll grab another win before he's done. But, um, you know, he's 49 turning 50. Uh, he said he doesn't really have any interest in playing the Champions Tour, which means how much more money can he make playing um, junior tour, so to speak, golf. Um, so I can see why it would appeal to Phil. Um, you know, Phil's always seemed to me, I don't know this to be the case, but it always seems to me like he's had somewhat of a, a more combative relationship with the PGA Tour. You know, it was it was pretty much Phil's idea uh, to change the WGC match play. You know, he wanted this round right. robin idea. Um, you know, the way I understand it, it 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 was those changes were made to, you know, perhaps other issues, but in part to accommodate uh, his desires. The FedEx Cup changed according to his wishes. Uh, at least that's the way I understand it. I could be wrong, but that's the way I understand well, it. Well, an influence. There's no question. Certainly an influence. The, you know, Phil, mm-hmm. Phil's got his his ideas about things. And, you know, it sounds to me like they're going to um, allow him, you know, some 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 leeway in this uh, this tour. But, again, I cannot imagine it working. Um, and, it you know, this is nothing new. It's been going on five, six, seven, eight years. And before that, um, this had uh, – uh, an iteration uh, decades ago. So um, the idea of getting the very best players together um, is is enticing. But uh, the PGA Tour through the FedEx Cup, um, the retirement programs that they have, um, world ranking points, there's there's a lot to uh, to love about the PGA Tour. Thanks. You know, I- I, I go back to 94 at Sherwood, and uh, I guess you were on tour then. Um, you may not have been at Sherwood at the Sharks shootout that, that week, but Greg Norman really felt like he had a lot of commitments, a lot of uh, momentum towards starting what he called a world tour. And in the end, the players that he thought he had commitments from simply could not walk away from the PGA Tour uh, with the idea that if Greg's thing didn't happen to pan out, uh, they would have, you know, lost connection with the with the greatest tour in the world, and maybe lost their connection to um, the ability to, to 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 have their legacy and and to win tournaments and and be part of, you know, the whole continuum of the PGA Tour. Do you feel like that? For I can understand your point about Phil certainly, but a great player in his 30s, let's say Dustin Johnson, just as a name, you know, could be anyone, uh, you know, Brooks, anybody. Um, can you see them taking that risk uh, in terms of losing the connection with the PGA Tour for this, let's call it short-term money? Well, I could I could see them entertaining the idea. You know, I, I don't know the, the specifics. I probably know about what you know uh, that tens, twenty, thirty millions of dollars are, are are being sort of dangled out in front of these players, uh, which is not only enticing to them. I'm sure it's enticing to their management. And, you know, I mean, the management can be pretty persuasive when they see that they're going to get a large chunk of things and, and, and rationalize it in all kinds of ways that I would argue would be detrimental to the careers of these players. Um, right. You know, I, I, 
you know, when you when we sit around and talk about, and this is, you know, it's it's probably uh, to some extent a flawed analysis on everybody here in the United States. But when we sit around here and talk about players, we do not get to their world accomplishments until the tenth minute talking about somebody. We first talk about what they did here in the United States or on the PGA Tour in the larger events. And then only will we fill in the gaps with, and they also won around the globe at various places here, there, and everywhere. Um, Those events are certainly diminished by their distance from the PGA Tour. Um, In the same way, these events, let's, let's say they're team events, and you go over and you make $10 million or $15 million and you only play... 15 times. Um, the money's good, I'm sure, and spends. Um, you know, and who knows? Maybe they've got, they're being promised ownership of, who knows what they're being promised. But from a historical standpoint, it's not going to help Dustin Johnson get in the Hall of Fame or Brooks Kepka get in the Hall of Fame. Well, Brooks will be in the Hall of Fame with four major championships, but it's, from a historical perspective, it's not going to help these players. And uh, with the fact that the FedEx Cup now has, been reinvigorated. Um, there's a chance of you know the best players over here making upwards of thirty million dollars in a year. And well, that's that's not nothing. And it is uh, you know you you pretty much ask anybody, even if they're from outside the United States, and and they'll say that the PGA Tour is the best tour in the world, the best courses, the most convenient, the best purses, the best ratings, the most potential sponsor interest. Um, so I can't imagine how you would and, – and there would be some sort of consequences for giving this tour your attention on the PGA Tour, some sort of suspension consequences that would arise. And there would be a, a financial um, penalty of some sort for that. Yeah. And, you know, just quickly using other sports as a comparison, I remember some great players who, you know, were – derailed to some extent by going to, uh, you know, upstart leagues, even if those leagues ended up being incorporated in the big league. And that happened in the uh, in, in professional basketball. The NBA was challenged by the ABA. Uh, the ABA lasted about, I think, in 15 years, perhaps. I, I could be wrong, before there was a merger. And then it was unified in a way that, you know, those players who um, – perhaps only played a couple of seasons in the NBA, certainly like Julius Irving, certainly weren't penalized in their in terms of their legacy. But I think of someone like Rick Barry, who was a tremendous player uh, in the NBA, only played, I think, three seasons before he took the early money from the ABA. And he was a tremendous player in the ABA, but nobody noticed. Right. And that part of his career is almost a black hole as far as his prime. He did come back to the NBA, and he was still good, uh, and, uh, you know, had one world championship in 1975. That was a miracle because he carried that team, but he was already a little bit on the downside. And so all I say is if you need big names for the Premier Golf League, those big names tend to have a historical orientation as far as, you know, what they want to leave in terms of their mark on the game. And I, I think that's a big ask to give, to give that up for money, which I'm not saying money is terrible. Of course, it makes the world go round. But why are you playing golf? Uh, you know, you can make a, he can make a lot of money on the PGA Tour. If it's more money, is it worth it to lose the mark that you would leave on the game and the way we talk about Hogan and Nelson and Snead and everybody and Nicholas? I think that's something that's too big of an ask for a great player. And maybe it'll happen, and maybe Phil is the outlier, but I don't see, certainly not Tiger, and I don't see other players in his mold like Rory or, or or Jordan, or any of these guys who have a lot of majors and want to make a mark on the continuum of history. So I'll leave it there unless you have another comment about that. Well, just real quickly, I mean, from a viability standpoint, who moves the needle? I mean, globally, Tiger and Rory. And then to a much, much lesser extent, I would have imagined at this part of his career, Phil Mickelson. So, um, you know, Tiger is... uh, um, he's Mount Everest, and and it's it's just I cannot imagine it working without him. Um, and I, you know, I I've I've listened to Rory's comments on the matter. I thought they were pretty diplomatic and and uh, and pretty poignant. Um, you know, uh, competition is a good thing. The idea of competition is a good thing. So to whatever extent 
the players have issues with the PGA Tour, um, this will give them a little bargaining power, I suppose. So good things may come from it on the PGA Tour, ironing things out to some extent. Um, but I can't imagine, uh, to your point, people turning their back on the um, not not just the money, which is enormous and, and getting bigger all the time, but the historical impact of uh, of their competing on the PGA Tour. Okay, let's switch gears finally to something we talked about uh, last week uh, on Tuesday after the USGA came out with their Distance Insights Project report. And it was a really good conversation on, on Golf Central. And But, you know, you feel like you almost barely scratched, we barely scratched the surface because it's such a big issue. And that is, you know, where do we go now that the USGA has sort of laid down this marker really for the first time in their history so definitively that increases in distance, in their view, uh, would be detrimental to the future of golf. And that some things have to be done, uh, undetermined what they will be, to head that off. I wonder, uh, as time's gone along here these last few days, if you have some some further thoughts that you've refined or or didn't get to say on television that that you'd like to, uh, you know, uh, expand on now. Well, sure. Um, You know, in in general, there are summaries, and they they still have more summaries um, coming, but the summaries – are that there's something wrong with the game and that it's it's going to get worse. I, I disagree with their premise. I don't think there's anything wrong with the game. Um, and I just don't see it uh, getting, uh, getting to the point that uh, it loses its appeal or interest. Um, you know, the traditions of this game are about uh, sportsmanship, courtesy, and playing by the rules, and the essence of the game is is uh, camaraderie. I mean, that's we play the game to get out and breathe fresh air with our buddies. Um, but it falls apart unless there's sportsmanship, courtesy, and uh, an understanding that everybody understands the rules. Uh, that's that's a great thing about the game of golf. Yeah, there's problem solving aspects of the game, but certainly at the recreational level, they're not they're not easier um, in the game. Nobody hits the ball too far at the recreational level. Nobody says they do. And at the professional level, there is, I guess, a sense that the game is impoverished by equipment. Um, It is important to note that in almost every single sport, there is a rather small faction of people who prefer the good old days. In tennis, John McEnroe wrote letters to and tried to conscript uh, the help of past greats, Rod Laver, Martina Tenavertilova, to go back to the days of wooden rackets. Um, it, it, it didn't work. Um, I, would, I would say that this would be the equivalent of wanting to take away the foam landing area in the high jump, which allowed, <laughs> which allowed uh, Dick Fosbury to do the Fosbury flop. Uh, if you take away that technical innovation in the, in the high jump, you cannot have the athletic innovation of, of the Fosbury flop. Now, would we like to see people run up and do the straddle technique and the scissor jump over, over the high bar again? I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, but, but in that one fell swoop, before he made that jump in 1968 at the Olympics, the record was seven feet, one inches. He jumped three feet, or excuse me, three inches and a, three and a quarter inches higher than anybody had ever jumped before. This is the evolution of that was by incremental quarter inches, right? But in one in one event, he jumped three and a quarter inches higher. Nobody raised their arms up and said this is terrible for the broad jump. This would be like disallowing the flip turn in swimming, um, which certainly sped things up. Uh, these athletic innovations, technical innovations, equipment innovations—they've done what they've uh, what they what they've meant to do. They've they've made the game more enjoyable at the recreational level level and more exciting at the professional level. Something I didn't say that night was <clears throat> if you look at the scoring average—not the adjusted, but the actual scoring averages from 1980 to 2019, so 39 years—the um, game has. Um, 
improved by scoring averages on the PGA Tour, the average scoring average, has improved by 2%. Um, if you look at sprinting the 100 meters from 1980 to now and swimming the 100 meters freestyle from 1980 to now, they have improved by 3 and 5% times. Um, so golf has not improved such that it's become – as some people would love to say, a drive and a flip, a drive and a flip for everybody. The average distance of an approach on the PGA Tour is 170 yards. It's not a drive and a flip. Um, there are so many myths and rumors and misunderstandings about this game. This idea, this romantic idea that angle matters in golf, it is, it is a romantic idea that is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. Can't prove it. You cannot prove that it's right. But I, I could make a strong argument that the idea of playing a golf course and trying to achieve an angle is wrong. An, an entire year of data from 2017 to 2018 measuring when hole locations were on the left and players were on the left side of the fairway, the middle side of the fairway, and the right side of the fairway. So the better angle would be on the right side of the fairway. And then an entire year of data when the fair, pins on the right and players are on the right side, left side, and in the middle, but the left side's the better angle. The better angle almost in every instance had a higher score. Now you think about that. The better angle That's, had a yeah. higher score, not a lower, a higher score, almost at every different delineation of distance. So the idea of angle is a myth. It's a romantic myth that is wrong. It sounds good, but what actually happens is when the pin's on the right and you drive it down the left, it causes a more reckless and cavalier type of golf where players then are, are shooting right at the flag and they short-side themselves on the right more often. When players drive down the right and the pin's on the right, it forces them to play a more conservative, more like Tiger Woods or more like Jack Nicklaus. It forces them to play the game correctly. Um, so human nature being what it is, this idea of angle, as romantic as people love to make it. And by the way, no golfer is good enough, none, no golfer on the planet today is good enough to step up on a tee and say, the pin's on the left, so I am going to drive it down the right side and do that with any consistency. Not a single golfer in the world is good enough. None. And, and, and by the way, the idea of taking, say, a third of the fairway and saying, that's where I'm going to hit it, and so now then their dispersion cone has moved far into the rough, and who knows what trouble lies over there. It is, it is ridiculous to take on that risk to gain that angle. So nobody's good enough to do it in the first place. And the idea that it helps you is at least in a whole year of data on every single yardage, is wrong. So when I listen to the golf course architecture gurus and geeks who pretty much have the ear of those who have a sort of nostalgic preference for golf courses built 100 years ago and think that everybody should be hitting the same clubs into greens that they were hitting 100 years ago to restore the angles to the game, I'm like, well, your ideas are romantic, but they're wrong. They're wrong. Nobody was that good then, and they're not that good now. The angle that well, architects I, put into golf courses, while I understand it, there's not a single golfer alive that would purposely get up on 18 at the TPC Sawgrass and drive it over the water into the left edge of that fairway to gain the angle into that green. Nobody in their right mind would do it. And, and if they did it for very long, they would pay the consequences of it with a, a ball in the water. Now, somebody may take that risk on and pull it off, but nobody's going to do it with any consistency. Nobody's that good. Well, let me put – those are fascinating insights uh, and opinions. I'm going to push back on the, the angle. Uh, I, I believe you that angle barely plays a role on the PGA Tour, but I would say it's because of increased distance – that has caused the shorter clubs being hit into the greens with, with way more uh, 
uh, frequency. And so that spin and height becomes a far greater uh, factor in terms of getting the ball close to the pin and negates angles. But if you were to have longer shots in without much, as much spin and height and had to carry bunkers, let's say, theoretically, with four and five irons or six irons, now you are basically having to allow for the extra uh, 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 space that the ball has to stop and having an angle with more green to hit to is an advantage. Uh, and that's what I think certainly used to hear about Hogan. Maybe it's all mythology, but he would hit to certain parts of the fairway because he was that good. Now, that's my point overall about why rollback hypothetically would be good for the elite level of the game in terms of bringing out the greater skill of the better player and allowing greatness to become more obvious and separation from the rest, whether it be Jack Nicklaus or Tiger Woods or Ben Hogan, if there were a rollback and the ball didn't go as far, whether it was through equipment or a ball rollback, you would see more superiority among the very, very best players. And I'd also push back on your uh, an analogy about um, innovations being good uh, and a natural evolution of all sports. I agree. Athletic innovation, athletic evolution is good for all sports and should never in any way be inhibited. You want the best athletes to perform at their highest level, physically, athletically, mentally. But when you start introducing innovations in equipment, you start threatening to put games out of balance. And I'm not agreeing that the wooden racket in tennis should be restored. But the game did change dramatically once the metal racket, and especially the oversized racket, came into play. And it might have been better for the game. The difference with golf and tennis is tennis is man against man. Golf is man against golf course. And that's a big distinction. But in terms of, you know, was there more shot making in tennis with the, slow, with the smaller racket head? Uh, I think probably... If you went back and said, who were the greater players and did they dominate more, they probably did with, with equipment that had not been enhanced because skill was more required. And hitting that center of the racket was more important. And that analogy holds going across the board with golf because if you widen the club head and make the effective sweet spot larger, you allow players to swing harder and have their misses minimized relative to a smaller club head. And that emboldens the less skilled player to play a very aggressive game. And on his week, that less skilled player can beat the quote-unquote better, higher-skilled player more often with enhanced equipment. Now, we could go on forever. I don't want to – I just would say, for example, the bodysuit in, in swimming, that was outlawed because the records were starting to fall at a rate that the rules makers felt like it had given too much um, – of a jump in the historical continuum. Um, right now we're seeing it with marathon runners with the, I think it's a Nike vapor fly. Uh, it has more rebound. It's, it's a superior technology. They're, they're talk, you cannot buy it unless it's been sold in stores. So there has been a rollback to some extent in that. So these are all equipment issues. These are not athleticism issues. And when Jack, when, when Phil Mickelson's asked and says, I hate to see uh, athleticism penalized, and seeing people like Bryson, who's working hot in the gym, have that earned advantage taken away. I agree that earned advantage should never be taken away, but this is not about that. This is about equipment innovations that have put the game. No, but it is about that. Of the, of the ruling bodies, I'll, I'll shut up right now, um, out of balance. No, but it is about a, that. As, and I'll tell you why okay, go and ahead. how. All right. So, again, technical innovation is typically followed by athletic innovation. And I used the analogy earlier about the foam padding behind the high jump that allowed Dick Fosbury to change his method. In the same way that bigger-headed clubs and longer shafts, and I would differ with you because um, your argument, I would argue, um, at, at the core of your argument is that the best players couldn't separate themselves. Well, nobody separated themselves more than Tiger Woods in the history of the game. So he was not diminished. His talent wasn't. He would say he would have separated himself more, but go ahead. It's okay. Well, no, he wouldn't. Uh, he couldn't. Okay. He couldn't do that with a, without. He couldn't <laughs> do that without laughing. 
Okay, nobody's ever separated themselves more than Tiger Woods did in the history of the game. No one has ever. He's still only won one out of three. No, nope. nope. won one out of two. Yeah. Nobody in the history of the game has separated themselves more than Tiger Woods. So I don't in, agree. In the mm-hmm. era that you're talking about, where it was difficult to separate yourself because of equipment, we have the player who separated himself the most. So, I. But they, I, we also have quote unquote more parity. No, parity has always existed Below in the game. Parity has always existed in the game. The difference between okay. the best and the average touring score was 2% and 3% 50 years ago. It's still 2 and 3% now. Okay? Parity has always existed. What is different is that every now and then, you will get a superstar that comes along and does things that nobody else can do. And it doesn't matter what it is. As long as the equipment's the same for everybody, they can still separate themselves. And, and, and there is ample evidence to show that that's the case. Um, with regard to technical innovation being followed by athletic innovation, we have seen in this era players who now extend and float their left foot. Okay, that was taboo 30, 40, 50 years ago. So think of Justin Thomas when I talk about this. Okay, he's five foot mm-hmm. nine. Okay, Justin Thomas would have probably swung the club if he had to play wood, he would be swinging the club more along the lines of Mike Reed. Okay, he would, he would have a bowed left leg. And he would have his weight firmly into his left heel and foot through impact. Okay? He would not be elevating, extending, and floating the left foot because that's a power move that he's able to do on a, on a much more consistent basis. And much more broadly across the PGA Tour, we see that move because of the equipment. In the same way that Nadal plays a different game of tennis than McEnroe. The racket allowed him to play more aggressive tennis. Is it the same ground strokes in tennis? Probably not. I'm not a tennis expert, but I, I, I've read enough about it that it, it's a different game. In the same way that golf, it's not the same. It's different. So we're, we're going we're to be at Augusta National here. And I fully respect and, and understand uh, the comments that were made there last year by Chairman Ridley that the second shot – um, from a historical perspective, as Bobby Jones and Alistair McKenzie had said, the second shot at 13 is meant to be epic. And the idea that players can hit it so far off of that team now that they have a mid to a short iron into the green doesn't fall under the category of epic. I understand that and totally get that. But if we were having a cup of coffee or having dinner, I, I, would, I would say that because players now are longer and much more inaccurate – just because of dispersion rates, just natural dispersion rates. Okay, players are longer, but now they're in the rough more. So the epic shots still come at Augusta National, but they come in different places. There has been no more epic shot at Augusta National on the 13th hole, maybe in its history, than 2010 when, when Phil Mickelson hit the shot from the trees, from the pine needles. Okay, that's not Nick Faldo's two iron from the fairway in 96. Okay, it's a different time. Okay, you're not the players don't find the fairway as often. They're in the rough more, which means they have to hit epic shots from the rough. Again, no more epic shot maybe has ever been hit at Augusta National, besides Bubba Watson's wedge from the trees at number ten. So the epic shots. Well, I disagree are, really quickly. I mean, we're talking about a six iron field hit. It was spectacular. It was great out of the fine straw. But I can't believe it was more epic, even though there were no television cameras at the time. To see the, all those three woods that came, that barely cleared the creek, and eagles were made, whether it was Arnold Palmer or others. So right you know, again the from the fairway, those are epic shots. Those are epic shots. They they absolutely are. Uh, but the game is the game is it's how has it changed? It's more powerful. It's longer, and it's uh, it's more inaccurate. So even now on the PGA Tour, there is an upper limit to how far I would argue, and I think we'll see this play out. I would argue that there's an upper limit to ball speed, somewhere 180, 185 miles an hour. Rory even brought this up. I was just doing an outing with Rory. and um, An upper limit in terms of, of the dispersion rates where you can still play. While it, it sounds like you can miss every fairway and play great, the fact is that's just not the case. You have mm-hmm. to have some level of accuracy. And once you get up I, – I, 
I, the, just the way golf courses are set up, and I, they're getting a little bit more strenuous. Um, the dispersion rate gets too high when you get above 180, 185 miles an hour ball speed. So I suspect there's an upper limit to how far players are going to be able to hit the ball and still have some reasonable ability to play golf uh, out of the rough. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, you make, the, you make the point about the technical innovations in, in running and swimming, but the improvement there is, is much greater than it's been in golf. And people will say, well, the golf courses now are much, much longer. But they're not so much longer. Um, in 1980, the average golf course – I actually did this math because <laughs> – so the average golf course in 1980 was 6,749 yards long. The average golf course in 2019 on the PGA Tour was 7,110 yards long. So it's a difference of 361 yards. Um, that nowhere near comes close to minimizing the distance gains that players have, uh, upwards of 550 yards off of the tee. Um, right. And then, you know, looking at the trackman numbers, the average carry distance in, in 2019 of the players, and then using myself as a model because – I fluctuated. I got as high as 49th in driving distance. Um, but I was, I, I would say, over the uh, whole, whole of my career, pretty average uh, driving distance. So using my specs uh, to go against those, players are roughly 15 yards longer with, with their irons. Um, so if you multiply that times 18 approach shots, very quickly you're going to get in the neighborhood of, of tee shots – and uh, approach shots, roughly 800 yards at a golf course would need to be longer, which means that the average course on the PGA Tour should be in the neighborhood of 7,500 yards. That's if you want them hitting the exact same shots into greens that they were hitting into in 1980. But I don't understand why golf has such an issue with the status quo. You think about it. The people who want the game rolled back, it is a very small number of golf course architects and gurus and people they influence and then those that have a nostalgic attachment to sort of a landlocked golf course of roughly 100 years ago. And I, I understand that, that they, they want players to have the same experience that they had 100 years ago. But that is a very small group of people overall in the game of well, golf. Me, and, and it really only affects – one final point. It really only affects – a handful of players on the PGA Tour. It's not that many. It's just a handful. Um, and and look, if they if they decide to have this local rule and roll the ball back, I, I'm fine with that too. I just think it's it's one, it's not necessary, and two, I think there's other options that would be more organic in uh, having an effect on how far players hit the golf ball. Let me just uh, ask you. Um you know, you talk about a, a small group of nostalgists and, and course architects. Where would you place Jack Nicholas in that in that um, group? Uh, because he's been on this thing actually as the leading spokesman for for more yeah. than thirty years. Well, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know what uh, motivations are 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 moving Jack to say the things he's saying, but I I suspect that it's it's not unlike an elder statesman looking back at the game. And thinking it was better in their days. Again, very similar to John McEnroe, Rod Laver, Martina Navratilova, wanting tennis to go back to a wooden racket. It's 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 human nature to look back um, with your done when you're done with your career, whatever it is, to look back and think that your days were were better. Um, but it's it's rare that you run into an architect. And Jack, that's that's his life now. Is he's a prolifically successful architect. And Tiger Woods is about to uh, – well, I mean he's entered into that world, but I, he's going to become an increasing factor uh, in the architectural world. There's no doubt about that. It's, I've yet to meet an architect that wasn't in favor of rolling the ball back. Um, you know, I, I think it probably opens up more options for them in terms of building golf courses. Um, they can get them on uh, a smaller footprint. But, I, I mean, in general, though, golf course architecture is going to shorter golf courses. I play a golf course every single day uh, when I play. That's 6,600 6, yards, 6,700 yards long. Um, I don't ever finish that around and think the golf course was easy. Um, an interesting golf course uh, can still be designed um, of moderate length and still be quite enjoyable. 
Um, well, not to, not to you know uh, focus only on Jack, but I I do I do believe his biggest motivation at this point certainly looks back and and identifies the way he played with how it's now played. But I think too he's trying to keep Muirfield Village as relevant as he considers relevance to be uh, in terms of design for the PGA Tour, not for the members, for the PGA Tour when they get there. I mean, certainly the members can play from other tees, and, and that golf course is, is more than anybody can handle or as little as they want to handle relative to what tees they play from. But for the PGA Tour, he really wants to build what he considers is a great challenge, and that's why he's frustrated because he, he Lengthen tees and just redid the golf course again. I think that's the prism through which he looks at this issue most. Um, and just let me add a couple of things. Uh, you know, course setup is the biggest determiner of par, as you alluded to last week. You know, if you want to, you know, control the golf ball and driving accuracy, grow more rough. Um, and so it's not a big deal. I don't think that par hasn't changed that much because course conditions certainly have, uh, or set, course setup certainly has, and. You know, as Nicholas himself said back in the course he shot uh, 64 on in 1965 at the Masters, it was far easier than the golf course that presents itself now. Maybe three strokes around easier, perhaps. And that's to accommodate the innovations in equipment and the golf ball. Um, so, and the last point I'd make is, you know, again, going back to athleticism, yes, just as tennis has become a more powerful game, a more aggressive game, so has golf. But accuracy is, to me, as it is in any sport in terms of as Tom Brady throwing a bomb, but on the money, accuracy is as big a measure of athleticism as power is. And right now, golf, and as you've acknowledged, does not value accuracy enough. So this is really about creating a game in which accuracy gains more, maybe not equal to, to, to power, but certainly proportionally well, More again, that comes from a holds. that comes from a, a an improper understanding of how to set a golf course up. So the reason well, the reason we look at players today that hit the ball so far and and declare them as inaccurate is because there hasn't been as this evolution has come along. They a, haven't widened the fairways. A corresponding idea of widening the fairways. That's exactly right. So. If you, if you go back and look, there were 75 players that averaged 70% of the fairways in 2000. Now there's a handful, okay? But it's not that they're more inaccurate, okay? It's just that the fairways are the same width, roughly speaking, and their dispersion rates are greater. So it, this idea that they're driving it all over the lot, yeah, there's a few that did. Tiger and Phil did for a while. But this idea that they're driving it over all, all the lot, again, it's wrong, it's just wrong, and it's it's well, okay. it, it's me, it, the fairway ahead. should be wider, and the rough should be thicker. the The penalty for the rough is is right at a quarter of a shot. Uh, if the the hitting it in the rough is about a quarter of a shot, um, I I think they should experiment with it being a half a shot at some places, or even uh, six tenths of a shot just to see the effect that it would have on the distance that players hit the golf ball. I think personally, now there's others that I've talked to that don't think that this would happen, but I, I think that personally if, if the penalty were that severe, players would make strategic changes in the setups of their golf equipment so that allowed them to find two more fairways around. Um, I agree with you. I think they would. But what I would say, why go that way? Why accommodate you know uh, the golf course to innovations and in equipment? Why not? Uh, accommodate the innovation to equipment so that you retain some of these classic elements in the golf courses, certainly, especially at major so, championships. So, again, at, yeah. at, at what cost? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, what you're speaking about is this local rule for professional golfers, yeah. which would be bifurcation. So um, I've talked to equipment companies, and here's what would happen if they bifurcated. They would have to spend – Upwards of $100 million on R&D and development of new equipment. It's not as easy as just going in there and just rolling back 10% on how far a golf ball goes. They would have to do experiments to have the ideal equipment, okay, because it would have to be perfect. 
So they'd have to spend about $100 million. Now, the, just giving out the golf balls over the course of a year for Titleists, let's say, is a $60 million. That's $60 million worth of golf balls they give away. Then you're talking about the equipment. So we're upwards of two to $300 million per equipment company. So times three equipment companies, that's a billion dollars. Do you know how much of that they get back? Zero. Zero. Because tour pros don't play for equipment. They don't pay for equipment. And elite amateurs who would play this equipment wouldn't pay for it either, and nor would recreational amateurs because they wouldn't buy equipment that hits the ball shorter distances. Wouldn't buy it. So that's a billion dollars, roughly speaking, that you're asking the equipment companies to spend to affect roughly 30 offers in the world. Now, that is a ridiculous <laughs> cost analysis of what bifurcation would be to say nothing of the conundrum that it would put juniors and elite amateurs hoping to play the professional tour. And they would put them in a spot of, do I play lesser equipment or do I play recreational equipment? It would cause a confusion in the game from the junior level and an exponential increase in the price of golf because where are they going to pass on that billion-dollar expenditure? Where are they going to pass that on? Okay, these people are in the business of making money. They're going to pass it on to the consumer who will not benefit. They will not play the equipment that is shorter. They won't play it. They won't buy it, but they'll be charged for it nonetheless. And the, and the professional golfer, they won't pay for it. They get it for free. So the burden of this bifurcation falls on equipment companies who've done nothing other than play the game fairly within the rules that have been legislated by the USGA and the RNA. And now then they say, trust us on this. All of the – and they're, they're tacitly admitting that none of their regulations to limit distance have ever worked. That's what they're tacitly admitting here. We've failed. Well, none, of our, none, of our, none of our policies worked. Okay, so we're over. We're over. But trust us, we've got it all figured out for you. And this time we're going to get it right. This is like somebody who's batted 175 all year long trying to talk himself into the fourth batting position in the World Series by saying, trust me, I've got it right. Trust me, I've figured it all out. Well, I don't trust them. I don't think they've figured it all out. And I think they're wrong. I think their premise is wrong. The game's not in trouble. It's not going to be in trouble. Um, you know, from a, from a new player perspective, in 2018, 2.6 million people played the game for the first time. That's a record. What record did it break? It broke the record of 2.4 playing in 2000, when not only Tiger Woods was at his peak, but there was irrational euphoria, economic irrational euphoria, which made people want to go out and play the game. So 2018 was a pretty good year, and that, I quote that because that's the last year of full statistics that I could find available. Um, golf's in a good spot. Uh, I, I think it's dangerous to change it. Well, I think they're looking down the road. I don't think they're saying there's an immediate crisis. Uh, I think they're looking at the game as they feel uh, the RNA, the USG, I'm speaking now, um, is better played at the highest level because the highest level is where – all our focus is as far as identifying the game as it should be played, and it's the model that everybody aspires to. I agree with you. There's no issue at the recreational level, and the game is not in trouble in any way in terms of distance at the recreational level, except for the land and the water and, the, and all the resources that, that golf uses uh, when it is on a bigger footprint. But we're just talking right now about the elite game. I think that's really the preponderance of what the argument's about. I, I, you know, we could talk forever, Brandon, and I'm sure we will again. I, I think putting the profits of the equipment company as the first priority is a mistake. Maybe they haven't. I'm done not putting anything. the profits there. I'm just saying that's the cost. I'm not. I'm not okay, I'm whatever not, it is. But you're saying they've done nothing wrong. They don't deserve this, and and the USGA and the RNA are misguided in making any changes because they've been over, so to speak. I don't think they've been over. They were probably too lenient with equipment manufacturers in the past, and now it's bitten them. And now they're looking for a correction. And, you know, again, this is a subjective uh, discussion in terms of why does there need to be a fix? We're talking about aesthetics, really. We're talking about esoteric appreciation of the game. Do you like the game this way or do you like the game that way? I happen to like the game when accuracy is more valued and more clubs are being used for the approaches. And 
it's there's more working of the golf ball and there's more spin on the golf ball and they just see the greater players exhibit their skills to a greater level. That is not earth-shaking in terms of ruining the game if it doesn't happen. But I think it's a less appealing game the way it's played now than it used to be. That's really the essence of my argument. And I get a lot of agreement. So you, and I'm not you, looking for agreement, but I've gained this, this perspective from a lot of great players from the past, mostly, yes, but certainly who are great artists and feel like some of the art has been lost. Uh, every every really great player every great player I've ever run into thinks there it was better in their day, that there was more art, more skill in their game um, than it, you know, in that, their I, day. I think, that's, being, I think that's, that's reducing these guys to just being completely egocentric about the way they see the world. Well, just, I think these, just these, how is that based in Jack fact? i and, and Lee Trevino and, and a lot of really uh, – I understand, I but how is that based game? in fact? It, it's well, an opinion. Oh, Where is it found in I mean, fact? It, it, these things are these things are about opinion. Well, I don't think all the fact that you uh, present. Well, all of the all of the statistics say the game's in a definitive. All of the statistics say the game's in a great spot. So I, I they don't. You know, Randall, there's more golf courses. I'm not. You know, with another discussion. There's what's more golf that? Courses closing. What's that? More golf courses closing. Yeah, I think I think pretty much everybody will agree that they were overbuilt due to the economic irrational euphoria that I was well, speaking okay, of. But whatever, there's sixteen. But when golf courses st- are closing, doesn't mean the game's in a great spot. There's still so sixteen thousand golf courses. There's still sixteen thousand okay. great go- golf courses. You know, in 1932, when Alistair McKenzie wrote in his book uh, "The Spirit of St Andrews" that there was nothing but doom and gloom headed for the game of golf because equipment had. Uh, had become too superior. There were roughly six thousand golf courses. Well, he couldn't have been more wrong. There's sixteen thousand golf courses now, and the game has grown exponentially since 1932 when he wrote that. So every single generation predicts doom and gloom because of equipment advances, and it's just never actually happened, uh, and nor will it happen. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom, but it, I think there's a, a, a good argument. I think the distance uh, insights report makes it. That the game can be improved going forward. Improved. That's really the well, I mean, again, about. it's it's not found in mm-hmm. fact. Um, it, you know, okay. Okay. It's just not I mean, found I in that's, fact. That's, there's a lot of, I mean, a hundred pages of, of facts that the USGA threw at at this report. I, that I don't that think golf courses have gotten longer and the players have gotten longer. That there's no debate. There's no doubt about that. There, I mean, there's there's no. So, I think what we're disagreeing about is the effect of that. That's really all the. The effect of what. About. The effect of golf courses getting longer and, and players hitting it longer. What is the effect of that? That's what the USGA is trying to judge going forward. And they're saying it's detrimental in many aspects. You can disagree, and, and I know you have your set of facts, and you're a great, obviously, litigator. I mean, I know you come from a family of attorneys and, and, and some great dinner table discussions. So, you know, uh, if it came down to debate, uh, you would be favored against most people. But I still think that golf is being appreciated by a lot of players who really loved it and still love it and, and feel that there's some trouble signs going forward. And I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging that. And I think that that's what the discussion is going to be about in the future. It's not an open and shut discussion like you're just dead wrong, USGA. I, I don't see that. Well, it's just I just disagree with you. It's not about – I mean, it's just I couldn't disagree with them more, you know. And, and, and you, when you look at the people that are for and against this, it's, it's, it, it is essentially – um, Gore Vidal against William F. Buckley. I mean, they're both Im- immovable. You know, that neither are going to move. Neither. <laughs> no, um, no, they'll be compromised. It's just it has the, to be compromised. It's just the fact that this is a political. It, it's a very there's you know there's there's millions and millions and millions and millions of people that that don't agree with this assessment, and there's a, a relatively small faction of people that that think the game. Should be taken back to the gay, the days of yore. Um, well, I'll you know. quote. I'll quote from the from the USGA's report. Thirty six percent agree something must be done to stop distance. Twenty eight percent disagree. This is from their survey of I think sixty eight thousand people. Thirty six percent didn't agree or disagree. In other words, it's up for grabs. They're in the middle. And I think going forward, the the argument will be won by who's the most persuasive to get the middle. Much like our presidential election now. Uh, it's the middle always decides if it's not a landslide who wins, and I think the middle's still up for grabs, and uh, that's I think why we'll be talking about this in the future 
quite a bit. Um, and I don't mean to cut you off, but I think we've probably no. run out of time. Boy, that's but right. I got to go do a show. Word. I got to yeah, go do a show. Last word. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I think we've uh, we've 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 kicked this ball all the way to the end of the field. Um, <laughs> for, for this field, anyway. Yeah. You know. I, well, uh, I always enjoy it. Thanks so much, Randall. Enjoyed it, Jaime. Uh, uh, I see you uh, some at some point down the road, and uh, look forward to talking to you again. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are.